If you would, in your Bible, turn to Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. As we finish out our series in the book of Lamentations, we are in the last chapter, chapter 5. We spent the last two Sundays looking at Lamentations chapter 4, looking at how the gold has grown dim, and yet that chapter ends with a little hope, uh, a glimmer of hope uh, concerning uh, the people of Israel, that their punishment of their inequity is accomplished and that God would keep them in exile no longer. And so we move uh, to chapter 5. And so if you would follow along with me as I read all 22 verses of Lamentations chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their inequities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the pearl of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we come before you. and We know that you have given us your word to build us up, to point us to your son, Jesus Christ. Or even as the prophet and the people cry out to restore us. And so, Father, I pray that you would edify us, that you would restore us, that you would strengthen us, and that, Father, you would turn our eyes to your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. The book of Lamentations is a, is a lament, a, a prayer of lament by the prophet Jeremiah over the destruction of the temple, the city, the nation, and the people. And I want us to listen once again to the words uh, that we have found throughout chapters 1 through 4. I'm not going to read them all, but just a, a few uh, of uh, the words that we heard from the prophet 
uh, concerning the destruction of God's people. That first we see in Lamentations, in chapters 1 and 2, we see gloom and despair. Chapter 1, verse 1, how lonely sits the city that is full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who is great among the nations. Or chapter 2, verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. But despite that gloom and despair, it is broken momentarily by hope that we find in chapter 3 and that we found there as we heard the words of uh, the prophet Jeremiah first saying that I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. But he goes on having uh, uh, gone over that darkness. He says this starting in verse 21 through 23. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But that, that glimmer, that ray of hope, is followed by more gloom and agony. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, How gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. And yet that chapter, even chapter 4, as he recounts what has happened there, ends with a, a note of hope. In verse 22, he says, The punishment of your inequity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. And so now we have come to the last chapter of Lamentations, chapter 5. And the question before us as, we, uh, as Christians is what can, uh, what, what can we learn from this book? How does it speak to us today as the people of God? What can we learn from it concerning lament as prayer? And, and it has been my desire as we've gone over these eight weeks through the series of lamentations here, it's been my desire to help us to learn to lament our sin and sorrow in order that we might learn to, uh, to trust more and more in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the world chooses in many ways to respond to affliction and suffering. They respond with denial, drugs, revenge, and they even build memorials to suffering. For the Christian, we're to respond to suffering and affliction by trusting in our Redeemer and Lord Jesus Christ. And one way we do this is through prayer. In the prayer of lament, we see this prayer of lament played out here in chapter 5, which is a prayer from Jeremiah and the people for restoration. Jeremiah knows the God he serves. He knows that God's love never ceases, that his mercies are new every morning, that he does not cast out cast off forever, that, that he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart. He knows the God for whom steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other, faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. And so Jeremiah and the people pray because they know God can restore them. 
in their prayer is hope. And if any people need to be restored, it was the people of Judah in Israel. The question is, restored to what? Restored to their posterity and prosperity? What would that look like? What would it entail? The land, the temple, the religious activity being restored? And certainly that was part of, uh, of God's promises under the old covenant that he would restore them as found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. But first of all, any restoration is a restoration to God himself. Thus, if you jump down to verse 21 of chapter 5, is the prayer, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. You see, this is the ultimate aim of God's restoration of humanity, to receive, restore people to himself. And in doing so, then, he will, after he restores people to himself, he will restore all things. He will make all things new. Now I'm getting ahead of myself in the story here, but uh, eventually uh, that all things will be made new, as we saw in Acts chapter 3. And this is the hope of any restoration. It is what fueled Jeremiah's and the people's prayer here in chapter 5, that God would restore them to himself. And then in doing so, in restoring them to himself, that he would make all things new. All the destruction, all the uh, 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 things that they endured would be made uh, new, that they would be restored to the way it was before. And so we here have here in chapter 5, we have a prayer. Lamentations ends with a prayer, a prayer that shows a, another glimmer of hope that God will act on their behalf. And so we see this prayer in two parts. In verses 1 through 18, we see a, a, a call for remembrance, a call for remembrance on the part of God. And in verses 19 through 22, we see a, a cry for restoration, a cry for restoration. And so first, let's look at verses 1 through 18, where we have a call for remembrance. Here in verse 1, they say, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. This is a, this is a call to God, a, a call for God to act concerning their affliction and suffering. Everything that they have gone through, even though it is by the hand of God because of their sin, that they are calling God to act concerning their affliction. And the first thing they call on him to do is to remember what has befallen them. They call out, remember what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace and do something about it. That's what they're, what they're saying. This is part of their prayer. Uh, they're asking God to do something about everything that they're going through. And what was their disgrace? Their disgrace in verse 2 was that their possessions had been turned over to strangers. In verse 3, they were like orphans and widows. They were weak and powerless. In verse 4, uh, they were taxed to death. Sound, sound familiar? <laughs> in verse 5, they had no rest from their enemies. And, and that was something uh, that was promised by God that as they entered the promised land and, and, and they took over the 
promised land that they would have rest from their enemies. God promised this in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10, in Deuteronomy 25, 19, and he even promised it to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 11, that he, he said that his house would have, him and his house would have rest from their enemies and his throne would endure forever. And so this was a promise of God. And, and so they're calling out to God, look at our disgrace that we were to have rest and now we no longer have rest from our enemies. And so they cry out for God to do something concerning their disgrace and what has befallen them. But they also are calling upon God to remember that they have reaped a bitter harvest for their sin. They have reaped a bitter harvest for their sin. And so what we see here in verses 7 through 13, it really is a confession of sin and its consequences. It's them uh, spelling out to God, here's the consequences of our sin, and, and they're calling on God to act uh, concerning that sin. And so uh, they're calling out and say, remember, we have weep, uh, reaped a bitter harvest. And so it starts off in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 6 through 13. In verse 6, he says, We've given the hand to Egypt and to Syria to get bread enough. And in verse 7, our fathers sinned or, or, are no more, and we bear their inequities. And, and so what they're getting at here is we have reaped a bitter harvest uh, for our sin. And part of that sin is that our fathers have run after other gods. This is what they're getting at in verse 6 there, that our fathers have run after gods, the gods of Egypt and Assyria. And because of that, we are weeping the consequences of their sin. Now, they're not saying that they don't have their own sin. They're not saying that they're not suffering for their own sin and the consequences of their sin. But they're saying here that, that God, uh, that we have, uh, we are reaping the sin of our fathers. That we are now, because of the destruction of the city and the temple and the nation and, and the destruction of people and the exile, we are reaping the consequences of that sin. They go on in, in verse 8 to say that there is none to deliver us, that God is the deliverer, and yet here, because of their sin, uh, that uh, of that, the bitterness of that sin, they are, have none to deliver them. That basically, uh, not only God, but they had trusted in the nations around them, uh, and even those nations around them cannot deliv deliver them uh, from what they're enduring. Uh, under uh, the Babylonian exile. In verse 9, the, uh, the part of the, the consequence of their sin is now their lives are in jeopardy uh, just by doing those very things they need to do to survive. Where if they, to get bread, they have to do it at the, at the jeopardy of their own lives uh, as now because uh, of people, uh, now bandits and people who are there in the land uh, are, and who are against them uh, to go out and get food uh, is to put their life in jeopardy. In verse 10, uh, they're talking about their starving uh, because of the consequence of their sin, that they're, uh, uh, they're starving. In verse 11, uh, because of the consequence of their sin, women are brutalized. In verse 12, because of the consequence of their sin, uh, the elders of the nation are shamed and no longer respected. In, in, in verse uh, 13, young men and young boys are treated 
uh, not as young men and young boys should be treated, but rather degraded in the eyes of people. And so this is, here they go over, uh, Jeremiah and the people are going over uh, the bitter harvest that has come their way because of the consequence of their sin. And they're asking God to call that to mind and to do something about it. But it's also a confession. As they're going through this, they're also confessing their sin, uh, what they have done uh, to, to reap uh, this bitter harvest. And then in verses 14 through 18, having called on God to remember what has been fallen them, to remember that they have reaped a bitter harvest for their sin, uh, they call on God to remember that their joy has been turned into mourning. Their joy has been turned into mourning. In other words, they're saying, God, remember our loss. Remember the, uh, remember the impact that this has had on us, both emotionally and, and mentally, uh, and that, that they have that we have become a, a people without music and merriment or mirth, and, and so they're uh, calling on God to remember that their joy, uh, that they have has been turned into mourning, that they have experienced a loss, that they have experienced a loss, and, and what is that? Look at verse 14. It says the old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. In in other words that the young and old alike, and, and, and so he's giving the parameters, basically everyone, young and low, old alike, have found life disjointed, uh, out of whack, you know, or incoherent. In, in other words, that life has come to where it no longer has any meaningful connection. And so he, he talks about uh, the old men who have left the city gate. That's, uh, the city gate is where the uh, old men congregated and socialized together and, and found purpose and meaning as they, as they guided uh, uh, the, the city and, and, and talked among themselves. Sort of like uh, uh, my father-in-law when he was alive, even though he didn't drink coffee, he was a farmer, even though he didn't drink coffee, he would always go on a coffee break. And that meant he went down to the local uh, diner or coffee shop or whatever it was there in the small town uh, next, to, not far from where they farmed. And he gathered around with other farmers uh, and drank tea, but he went there so he could listen to the talk. That's how he, he got connected, right? That was his connection uh, to the community and to other farmers by coming together. And while they drank coffee and he drank tea, uh, they would, he would... He would listen to the talk, uh, uh, the farm talk, and what was happening, and 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 uh, and so he was connected that way. And, and so we see that they they have a loss of connection. Or our young people, how are they connected? Right? When you're young, what do you talk about? Music is one of the things you talk about, right? Hey, have you listened to the latest band? Uh, have you listened to uh, or what's her name? Who's going on tour and really famous now? I can't even think of. That's how well I keep up with music. I don't. <laughs> and, uh, but that connects young people together. That's one of those connections in society, uh, even today. And so here uh, he's saying that, remember that our joy has been turned in the morning so much so that everyone is finding life disjointed, that, that there's no longer any meaningful connection to the things of this world. But not only that, not only that, he, he, he says in verse 15, he says, he says, the joy of our hearts have ceased. 
the joy of our hearts have ceased. In other words, uh, that we find no joy in, in living. Uh, and, and people who often go uh, through terrible affliction and, and suffering uh, often come to the point where they find no joy in living. living. It, it ceases. And this is what happened to uh, Jeremiah and the people. The joy of their hearts has ceased. And, and, and we know from Scripture that their joy was the Lord, right? The joy of the Lord uh, is my strength. And, and so in losing joy in their hearts, they also lose strength for living in there. And this is what has happened to them in there. In verse 16, he goes on and says, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And so he says, he says basically that the beauty and majesty uh, that we experience in following God and being the people of God and having the temple in Jerusalem is gone. All those things are destroyed. The beauty and majesty is gone, and because of that, our joy has been turned into mourning. And why are they gone? Uh, the second part of verse 16, the reason that all uh, this joy has been turned in the morning, he says, Woe to us, for we have sinned. And so we see a continual confession by the people of God and the prophet Jeremiah confessing that, that all of this has come upon them because they have sinned. They're confessing their sin before God. And therefore, because of that, because of their sin, their hearts were sick with grief and sorrow. And their eyes grew dim uh, because all of that grief and sorrow, as he says in verse 17. But not only that, in verse 18, a, a big reason for their grief and sorrow, remember that the center of their life uh, in Jerusalem and in the nation, the center of their life was the temple, uh, that it was the place where heaven and earth came together, the Lord God dwelt. And, and so a huge part of their sorrow uh, as he tells us in verse 18, is because Mount Zion lies desolate and jackals prowl over it. In other words, the temple lies in ruins and wild animals are running over sacred ground. So even our, our, our connection to God has been destroyed. And therefore, our hearts are sick with grief and our eyes grow dim because of sorrow. Friend, I, I want to say to you today, do you have something you need God to remember? To act concerning an affliction or suffering or grief that you're going through? Have you reaped a bitter harvest of sin? Has your joy turned into mourning? And if it has, start by calling out to your Heavenly Father to act. For God is good and his righteousness goes before him. In him steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. And so cry out to God. And that's what we see in the second part of chapter 5 here is that we see a cry for restoration. Having God... Uh, called God to remember and to act concerning uh, what their affliction and suffering they have gone through. We hear this cry uh, for restoration in verses 19 through 20. 
and it's interesting here in verse 19, he, he starts off by saying, but you, O Lord, reign forever. So despite everything we've gone through, uh, despite our sin and our affliction, despite all this, this death and destruction, the, the, the destruction of the temple, the city, and the nation, he, he says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. And, and, and it's interesting, as we look at verse 19 here, uh, first of all, chapter 5, as I've shared previously, uh, the book of Lamentations is built uh, there are five poems, so each chapter is a poem, each of them 22 uh, verses long, except for chapter 3, which is 66 verses long. Uh, all the first chapters start and follow the Hebrew alphabet, and so uh, every verse in chapters 1 and 2, it, it, it starts with a different uh, uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. Uh, chapter 3, uh, there's three verses, starting with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, in chapter 4, but when you get to chapter 5, it doesn't follow that pattern. They're just 22 verses. The only thing that these verses have in common is that they end with what is called a, 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 a you or a lament in Hebrew that, that gives the idea that the prophet is lamenting every verse except chapter 19. Chapter, chapter 19 does not end with the lamenting you sound, and the reason why is you don't lament over who God is. You praise God. And, and so what he's doing here, he says, he says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures through all generations. And, and, and so uh, Jeremiah pauses his lament to recognize that God still rules the nations. You see, it was God, not Nebuchadnezzar, who was in control. And it was God, and not Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who conquered uh, the city and destroyed the temple in, in the city and, and took the people into exile, who is working out his purposes in human history. God is working out his plan of redemption of all tribes, tongues, and nations. And God is on the throne, and he will carry out his plan to completion. And, and so uh, the prophet pauses here because Jeremiah recognizes that God's sovereignty is the, brace, the basis of prayer. God's sovereignty is the basis of our prayer. Because God is sovereign, we can pray to him knowing that he is able to do something about our prayer. If God wasn't sovereign, we wouldn't pray to him because he couldn't do anything. And so we pray to God because he's sovereign. That is what gives us hope uh, in there. And so, so God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is the basis of this prayer. That's why Jeremiah pauses here and recognizes the sovereignty of God in verse 19. And friends, I, I want to tell you today that despite what you may be going through, what afflictions or grief or sorrow, whatever circumstances you have in your life, I want you to know that there is an occupied throne in heaven and the one who sits on that throne rules and reigns over all things. He does not let human history uh, move randomly or accidentally, but through his providence and his control. And it's the same for your life. God 
is in control. And that is the basis for our prayers, for our lament. This is why we can pray, and this is why we can have hope in the midst of our suffering, in our affliction, in our grief, and even our sin. And so the, the prophet then moves in verse 19 from recognizing that God is sovereign, that he is control, that his throne endures through all generations, to verse 20, where he says, Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? In other words, why have you abandoned us for so long? There's all these promises, God, in your word that you've given us in your law. Why have you abandoned us for so long? And this, this cry in verse 20 is actually a call uh, to God by the people to remember those covenant promises. To remember uh, his covenant promises and fulfill them when they confess their sin. Listen to Leviticus, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 through 42. It says, But if they confess their inequity and the inequity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their inequity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And, and so this, this call, uh, how long uh, still have you abandoned us for how long, is really a call for God to remember these covenant promises that should they confess their sin, that he would restore them uh, to the land. But not only that, it, it also shows that God's discipline God disciplines his people. We, we know that even as Christians from Hebrews chapter 12, that God's discipline has awakened within Judah her own sense of sinfulness, worthlessness, and helplessness. And my friends, my friends that, that's the purpose of God's discipline in, his, in our lives. The purpose of God's discipline of his people that he wants to awaken in us our own sinfulness worthlessness and helplessness apart from Jesus Christ. And so when we look at this prayer here, what we see that this prayer actually invokes God's grace and compassion. Lord, remember your promises. And then it leads to the, to the second part in verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of as old. And so the prayer, the prayer by Jeremiah and the people is, restore us that we may be restored. Basically, verse 21 is, is a request for national restoration and spiritual renewal. It's a, it's a recognition. Uh, it, it, they recognize that only God can bring true repentance and restoration. That's why, why it says... Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. So God, God must do the work. He must restore them to himself first in order that they may be restored. In other words, repentance is initiated by an act of God. Jeremiah 31, verse 18, 
in 33 through 34 says this. But I, but I want to share with you uh, Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, which also confirms this. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You see, this is something God does, that God renews the heart. God restores us in order that we might be restored. You see, renewal and restoration is an act of God. It is up to God. It all depends on God's divine initiative. He will first regenerate people who then repent, and then he will restore or renew. And so this is their cry in, in verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. But the prophet goes on, and, and, and actually it, it, it's, even though there's hope in this prayer, that verse 22 ends the prayer on a word of doubt. On a word of doubt. He says, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And so having prayed this prayer, which itself is uh, 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 showing that there's hope that they have hope in God to act that here despite that that it ends uh, with a word of doubt now the new English Bible translates this a little bit differently he says for if thou hadst utterly rejected us then great indeed has been thy anger against us but I, I think even with that translation we could still say that there's doubt that in the uh, prophet's mind that maybe maybe they their sin has separated them so much that they're not sure if God's going to restore them both nationally he may restore them spiritually uh, but he was sure that they would not be restored to the land and so this last verse shows that the prayer is both a doubtful and yet at the same time a hopeful request and you see doubt is what comes with affliction and suffering and sin but hope lives because of who God is God doesn't go back on his promises therein lies the hope despite her severe suffering under the just hand of God the people of God have not been abandoned for God is sovereign and God's covenant still stands despite the people's disobedience and so the hope of the prophet Jeremiah and the people was that if she confessed her sin and called on God that she would once again know his protection and God would ultimately restore her the covenant blessing by the way this is exactly what God did that he brought them back from exile that he had them rebuild the temple and he established them once again 
in the land. But you see, that wasn't the end of God's restoration. His restoration of his people uh, from exile was to point to a greater restoration, an ultimate restoration, a restoration that would be culminated in the coming of the Messiah, God's anointed one, his son, who would come and restore all things. And you know, as Christians, as the people of God, there are many times we find ourselves voicing the same kind of questions that Jeremiah and the people of Judah voiced in chapter 5. There are times when we pray and, and our prayer ends in a word of doubt. Such as, has God rejected me? Can I still be saved? Is there any hope? Will my sufferings ever come to an end? Why does God allow persecution and oppression? What purposes does he hope to accomplish through warfare and famine? But friends, I, I'm here to tell you today that, that God, that while he may not have provided all the answers to Jeremiah, and while he may not provide all the answers to our questions, that God did send the Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice uh, for our sin. And therefore, he restored us spiritually. But in Christ, uh, further, God is fulfilling and will fulfill his promises that he made to his people under the old covenant to restore, ultimately restore all things. And we saw that promise in the passage I read for our pastoral prayer in Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. The promise that if his people would repent, therefore, and turn back, then your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive in the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of restoration. And our sin had separated us from God, and yet God, through his son Jesus Christ, restored that relationship and reconciled us to himself. But salvation isn't just about reconciling people. It's about reconciling all creation. You see, in the fall... All creation fell, not just man, but everything. And so God's promise to his people, to us today, is not only will he restore us and give us salvation, but that he will restore all things. Listen uh, to another promise, first about uh, restoring you from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, where the apostle Peter writes, and after you have suffered a little while, in other words, after you've gone through this life of affliction and suffering, the God of all grace, who has called you in this eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see, I, our Lord is in the business of restoration. And he will restore us. That he will, he will return us uh, to our first state that, uh, of Adam and Eve or where we lived in perfection before God uh, where we were obedient to his word and followed him. But the promise goes on 
not just us, but all creation. And we see this promise of restoration first in the resurrection. In the resurrection, when Jesus was resurrected and he returned before the disciples and, and he visited them there in John, in the end of John's gospel, and he stood in the room with them. Uh, and one of the things he did is he had them touch them, right? And, and then he ate fish uh, and, and uh, he drank in their presence showing that he had been restored and that creation, we are part of creation, has been restored. But that promise, so the resurrection shows the promise of restoration. And, and because Christ is resurrected and he sits on his throne, uh, he can say in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, do you believe that today? That our Lord Jesus Christ is making everything new. That means he can make you new. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, he can make you new. If anyone is in Christ, he has become a new creation. He is in the business of restoration. So despite whatever affliction and sorrow and grief uh, or sin that we may be going through, Christ makes everything new. These words are trustworthy and true. And so turn today to Jesus Christ. Turn today to your Redeemer. Turn to the one who only one who has the power to make all things new, including including restoring you how do I want to say this? Including taking taking the things that you have endured in this life giving them new purpose and meaning and direction it only comes when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ he will make all things new let us pray Father we just praise you for we know you are God who can make all things new you spoke and the universe came into existence. And Father, you spoke, and your son came and died for us, and he made that what was dead alive. Father, your word tells us that you call into existence those things that do not exist. And so, Father, we do not turn to the world or the things of this world, but we turn to you trusting in you, knowing that despite what we're going through, what we're experiencing, what is going on around us, that you make all things new. And one day, as you will leave your throne again and come as king and judge, you will right every wrong. And Father, you will raise us from the dead making our bodies new and we reign with you and so Father we rejoice 
in your son Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the resurrection. We rejoice in the one who makes all things new. In his name we pray.